Before I get to tell you, forget to tell you, um, after the service, there's ice cream and popsicles outside on the sidewalk out there. So um, if you have children to pick up after the service, make sure that you come back upstairs and, and go out the front door there and you'll run right into the table where they're serving those at. I hope that's in your diet to eat ice cream and popsicles on 4th of July weekend. Not sure if there's any sugar-free stuff out there, though. I don't know. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Kings this morning, taking all the way back into the Old Testament. And I, I know some of you showed up this morning like, what? I want to be an axe. How come we're not doing that? But I, I need to take you into 1 Kings chapter 19. So you've got to make your way back into the Old Testament. There's a, a passage there that is a follow-up to what we looked at last weekend. We talked last weekend about God on his throne, his word endures forever. The word of the Lord never changes. So same yesterday, today, and forever, right, church? Okay, that's our God, never changes. It's always the same. We need to come back to this passage in 1 Kings 19 as kind of a, a brief detour away from the book of Acts just for today so that God can remind us of a biblical principle that really plays into what we talked about last week. There's an event that occurs immediately after Elijah is on Mount Carmel. Now, if you didn't grow up in church and you're not familiar with the story of what happened on Mount Carmel, I'm going to fill you in very briefly, just two minutes. The nation that Elijah was part of, which is the nation of Israel, had been following God. But this nation as a whole decided they're going to move away from the things of God. They're, they're individuals who started chasing after an idol, uh, a false god by the name of Baal. And when you see the name Baal, B-A-A-L in the Bible, it's pronounced Baal in their language. Th this god with a small g was what the other nations, the Philistines and the Canaanites, had been chasing after. Well, sure enough, they infiltrated Israel and they started causing the people who were in Israel to chase after a false god. Now, the worship of Baal is very sexually oriented. It's very self-serving. So it caused people of the nation to begin going after the things that they wanted, the things that they were interested in. And what it was doing was literally ripping the nation apart. People were confused anymore about what their convictions were. So they're chasing after the things other than what God had said his purposes were. Now, we understand, looking back in the Old Testament, that the very reason that God instituted Israel as a nation was that they would be a lighthouse to the rest of the world. The rest of the world would be looking at them saying, this is what it looks like to follow the God of heaven, to demonstrate that God is still on his throne. So they were going to be this lighthouse to the nations. Now the problem with idolization is what idolization does to you, when you put a, an idol in place like the God Baal, it, it, the, it replaces God, it puts someone else on the throne. So someone is literally saying, God, you're no longer on the throne of my life. I've got a new thing that is the center of my life. So here's the problem for them. Two belief structures competing against each other. God Baal, small g. God of heaven, big g. These two belief structures cannot coexist. So Elijah shows up on the scene, 1 Kings chapter 18. And he says, if God is God, then serve him. But if Baal is God, then chase after him. Stop wavering. So he throws out a challenge, and he puts a sacrifice on the altar, and he says, the God who answers by fire from heaven, that God is the God you should serve. Well, Baal can't answer because he's not a God, right? So he can't come through. Now, if you want to read that story, go to 1 Kings 18, but don't do it right now, all right? Because we're going to 1 Kings 19. So what we're about to look at is right after that moment. 
Now, Elijah's had the Mount Carmel experience. He's called the people of the nation to honor the God of Israel. And then he hangs around in town for a while. He stays hoping to see the king of his nation, his name is Ahab, to see the king of his nation honor what he just observed on Mount Carmel in hopes that that king would begin honoring the truth of God's word and that he would lead his nation back. But Ahab is, or Elijah is soon to experience bitter disappointment. Go with me now to verse 1 of 1 Kings 19. You'll see it on the screen as well. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now here's what you need to know about Jezebel. She is of royal blood and she is every bit a queen. But she has an icy heart. So you could call her the ice queen because she definitely is a woman who's after her own motivation. She is utterly ruthless. She's killed God's people before and has no problem killing them again. Her personality is so forceful that even King Ahab walks in fear of her. So her reaction in verse 2 is not surprising whatsoever. Verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. In other words, Elijah, I want your head on a stick, and I've got the power to do it. I'm going to make sure it happens. So here's her focus. As soon as possible, she wants to remove Elijah from being able to influence the king any longer. So she threatens death within 24 hours. And this woman has a fierceness that Elijah understands. What she wants is for Elijah to be discredited. Because if she can discredit him before the nation, she thereby discredits his God. And that's her goal ultimately, because she follows after Baal. She doesn't follow after the God of heaven. Because she recognizes without that strong voice present, I can begin to lead the nation where I want to lead the nation. Now her threat is absolutely effective. Elijah plays into her hand, and he runs for his life. Just when God could use him to step up to the plate, this man of God fails. Go forward with me into verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he travels without stopping. He goes not only through his own country, Israel, but he goes into the next neighboring country, Judah. And he travels all the way south through Judah, and he ends up on the border of Judah. He's gone 95 additional miles to get away from her. And that's at the point where he leaves his, witness, his, his servant behind. No reason to jeopardize his servant's life. Now Jezebel's power is so strong that she can reach beyond Israel even into Judah because her daughter is on the throne down in Judah. So Elijah recognizes his life is not safe there. So he decides to pick up and go even further south into the desert. From Elijah's perspective, the Mount Carmel experience has been a fail. We know that God was powerful. We know that God rained down from heaven and consumed the altar. If you know the story or you're going to read it later today. God showed himself powerful, but Elijah's looking at it as though it's a fail. Jezebel still got an icy heart. It's worse than ever. Ahab is a wimp. Elijah's pride is shattered, and he wants to get away. It's extreme dejection. He needs to be alone. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness 
and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested, requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. So he's exhausted, right? Physically and emotionally, Elijah crashes, closes his eyes, prays that they never open again. God, just take my life. Just end it. My nation, my very culture has turned away from you. They've completely abandoned you. I don't want to live any longer. Why keep me here? Verse 4, he says, it's enough. I'm done. Now, had Elijah really wanted to die, I'm sure Jezebel would have accommodated him, right? All he would have had to do is just kind of hang around a little bit longer. So he obviously doesn't really want to die. That's why he runs away. But he is utterly broken. His spirit and his body are gone. So he throws himself under this broom tree. It just speaks of a juniper tree there. It's more like a bush. It's about 10 feet tall. It's got these long, slender leaves. In the middle of the desert, it's great shade. That's where we find him in verse 4 saying, I've had all I can take. You ever talk like that, church? You ever feel like you're at the point where you just say, I can't take this anymore. I'm absolutely done. i got to check out. But God knows he can take more. Because when we're tempted to think we've come to the end, God knows better. He says this, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, God who is faithful will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able. God knows Elijah is capable of much more and he knows exactly what he needs. What Elijah needs is perspective. He needs to be reminded of who's on the throne. He needs to be reoriented to understand who God is because of this. The main reason for Elijah's failure in this moment, he's listening to a Jezebel. He's got a Jezebel in his life. He's listening to a political power. He doesn't bother to wait for God's intervention. He's listening to what the government has to say. So we find the mighty prophet of the Lord God curled up in a ball underneath a bush hiding out in the desert. And he closes his eyes and says, just take my life. But God's got other plans for him. Move forward with me into verse 5. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said, Arise, eat, verse 6. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. He'd probably eaten very little during this journey. He's already gone five days into the wilderness. His depression likely stems partly from the fact he's physically exhausted and he needs some strength, so he needs sleep. And he needs a meal, and God knows this. So before God deals with his spiritual issues, he's going to take care of his physical issues first. This is really encouraging. You know someone who's sliding, who's sliding backwards away from their walk with God? Maybe you've got somebody in your life who's moving away, it seems, at a precipitous rate away from God. Notice what's going on here in this story. Even though Elijah is thoroughly discouraged, even though he's absolutely feeling like he's at the end, God cares for him in that moment. He says, Elijah, I know what you need. You need me to intervene. God may need to use you to intervene in someone's life in this same way. So Elijah opens his eyes, and at his head, a fresh loaf of Panera bread. How cool is that? 
Man, it smells so good. You ever walked into a bakery when the bread's just coming out of the oven? You know what he's smelling in this moment. We're told it comes right off the stone, and there's a jar of ice water next to him. God knows exactly what he needs. He needs that and some more sleep. So apparently he falls back to sleep in verse 7. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. Verse 8, so he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. 40-day walk. He's going to Mount Sinai. That's a, Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Well, what do we know about Mount Sinai? That's the place where people have encountered God in the past, right? That's where God has encountered Moses. The elders of Israel, they stood at the base of Mount Sinai. The children of Israel, when they met God and got the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. But 40 days? He's already gone four days into the wilderness plus one day further. Now he's got another 40-day journey. He's going 45 days. Now we know it's 100 miles from Beersheba to Mount Sinai. Geographically, that's the location. Average human can walk 20 miles a day. So at best, it should be another four-day journey, maybe five. Forty days, what's going on? He's wandering. He's in this place of depression. He seems to be just wandering. We don't know the details, but he takes his time getting there, completely alone, wandering in the desert, and he arrives at the cave. Let's, let's go and look at the cave, verse 9. There he came there, he came, then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You ever had God ask that question? I've had it. I've had God ask that question. It's a good question. What are you doing? Why are you here? I've run to a cave before. Not physically a cave, but a place to hide from the things that were going on in my world. Here's Elijah's problem. At every single other point in his life, he's gone to the places that God has sent him. He's gone when God has told him to go. This time, he's gone completely on his own. Elijah left and ran from the threat that Jezebel brought on his own, and he left in fear. So God's asking a probing question. Why are you here? What are you doing, Elijah? What's up with this? Let's go forward into the story, verse 10. His answer, he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now God's question has just called for intense self-evaluation. Does Elijah understand the depth of his own failure? Can he not see what's going on? See, his answer reveals the depth of his discouragement. Now, I get that. I understand that he's discouraged. He believes he's the only one left. So from God's opening question, Elijah is dismissing the people of his nation as being utterly beyond hope. They can't be reached, God. I'm the only one left. They've killed everybody else who's valuable to you. They've ripped your churches apart. So instead of confessing his own issue, I mean, he's standing in a cave, right? He ran away from Jezebel. Instead of confessing his own issue, he argues his case. 
So Elijah stands there and he waits for God to respond. Crickets. God's got no comment. It's just dead silent. Now he's going to give him an instruction in just a moment. Elijah has argued his case, but God has no comment. Now track this with me. He has walked 50 days on foot, gone to Mount Sinai where other people have encountered God, and he wants that encounter. He wants God to show himself and tell him exactly what to do, but he wants to complain first, and he's complained, and God's got no response to his complaint, nothing. God is silent. Really? Like, nothing? I've said that. I've been in the cave where I've said that. Like, God, don't you understand what I've gone through? Nothing. My response back to God in those moments when it's been silent is, what are you doing to me? Why do I have to go through this? I'm sure all those thoughts are going through Elijah's mind. Verse 11, God's instructions to him. Remember, there's been no comment to Elijah's complaint, just instruction. Verse 11, so he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. So as soon as Elijah steps from the shelter of his cave, he's met with awesome power. The cyclone is ripping the mountain apart. Rocks are crashing down to the valley floor below. And just as the wind begins to subside, the earth begins to shake. The mountain begins to rumble. But God's not in that. And then there's a fire and a raging thunderstorm. Theologians looking at this are thinking, this is like flashes of bolts of lightning. He must be seeing this right in front of his face. Surely this announced the presence of God. But the Bible says God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the fire. God is not in the wind. Why the wind? Why the earthquake? Why the fire? Only to end up with a still, small voice. God's not in the earthquake. God's not in the fire. God's not in the wind. And he's showing Elijah, I'm not always in the big, magnificent things you're looking for, Elijah. Sometimes I'm in the small things. You've had the Mount Carmel experience. You've seen me powerful. You've seen me rain fire from heaven. But sometimes I'm working in ways you can barely detect. Sometimes it's just Elijah. The Hebrew language says that the the stillness of this voice here is just a quiet, hushed, low, Elijah. Elijah. What are you doing here? He's understanding God's presence now is not always in the gigantic. The display of God is wonderful on Mount Carmel. But sometimes, more often than not, God's working through his word quietly, silently, in ways that we completely miss and we don't understand I want you to notice something because it can easily slip past your attention. As you look at this passage, do you notice the tender mercy of your God? There is absolutely no reproach, not even a rebuke of Elijah's reckless request for death. 
kill me. Just end my life. Can God scold Elijah for doing that? Absolutely. Elijah, loser. Can't believe you want to bail out so quick. God doesn't do that, right? He's, he's not shaming him. Fear me. It's not going on. I'm the great and mighty Oz. It's not going on, church. God says, here's who I am. Look at me, Elijah. Even though he can scold him in this moment, instead of rebuke, here's who I am. You can't always see me in the power display, but you can find me in the stillness if you're tuned in, if you're listening. In effect, this is our God saying, I am greater, I am more powerful, I am more mighty than just the evidences of my judgment. Fire, wind, earthquake, always associated with Old Testament wrath of God. God coming in power, majesty, judgment. God's not in the fire, he's not in the wind, he's not in the earthquake. Here's what I'm reminded of, and this hit me hard this week, church. While our God is a God of judgment, he is also our God of grace and mercy. Same God, 100% judgment, 100% grace and mercy. It's not 60 of one and 40 of the other. He's omni-everything. He's not lacking in any area. So our God is a God of judgment, and he can be seen that way. But he's also seen as a God of mercy and grace. So he's the gentle voice calling out, Elijah, what are you doing here? Let's go into the story again because Elijah knows now he stands in the presence of God. So he's timidly going to make his way out of the cave. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, God has asked the question twice, so I've got to hammer this point home twice. Again, God can show himself awesome in power, right? That's our God. He can show himself awesome, but he's also this gentle voice. What are you doing? Elijah needs to know that. That's why God's done it twice to him now. He needs to be reminded of this truth. I need to hear it. You need to hear it. The same God who will bring judgment one day is also my God who says, I am grace and I am mercy. So to drive that point home again, God raises this really embarrassing question. Elijah, what are you doing here? Go forward with me, verse 14. Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. See, he could have just hit the replay button, right? It's the exact same response he gave the first time. He's answering this way. The nation that I live in has rejected a relationship with you. They're abandoning your purposes, God. I'm the only faithful one left. Much of what Elijah is saying is true. I'm not going to diminish his argument. His argument is accurate. This is a time of persecution. It's rampant in his nation. I understand why there's this sense of despair and loneliness, but his perspective is really poor. He's caught up in this moment of, look what's happening to me. 
So clearly, Elijah doubts that God can turn the nation back. It's as though he's saying, I was your best shot, God, and it didn't work. Look at me, I'm the only one left. What's gonna happen now? Putting it all on himself, right? Hear me. There is a danger in self-vindication. There is a huge danger in saying, I've got my act together, too bad about them. Too bad they're so screwed up. Glad I got my act together, though. This is what you see Elijah doing here. See, when God probes, why are you here? Elijah only sees his good qualities, and he sees the sins of everybody else. I've been faithful to you. I've done what you've asked me to do. These people are totally screwed up. Now, I get this. Elijah is really irritated with the corruption of his age. I absolutely get that. Many of you can identify with that this morning. Many in the church as a whole are very irritated with what happened with the Supreme Court ruling two weeks ago and feel like, wow, what's happening to culture? Why are things changing? It's time for God to smoke them. That's Elijah's attitude here. Does it not seem strange to you that he does not suspect himself? See, in his own incapacity, he's hiding in a cave. He's run from Jezebel. He's running from what the government said they can do to him. So when the question is repeated, he returns with the exact same answer because he's not seeing himself accurately. There's a truth about human nature. Even the best of us, and I'm not diminishing Elijah at all. He's a great man. Even the best of us are willing to look with a degree of haughtiness on our own good qualities, right? We are self-absorbed. We tend to want to see ourselves that way. So according to Elijah's evaluation, he's done nothing wrong. He's not guilty whatsoever. This is the other people. I gotta remind you again of why I just love Charles Simeon. I know you probably get tired of me showing you his quotes at least once a month, it seems like, but the guy is such a brilliant author. He wrote this all the way back in 1836 about this tendency in human nature. There is not a man in the universe whose representation can be fully trusted in the things which affect his own character. True, right? It's so beautifully stated. I wish I could write like that. It's so well said. There is not a man in the universe whose representation can be fully trusted in the things which affect his own character. See, there's a partiality in each of us that leads to a cloaking device. It's like we drop a camouflage over the top of ourselves. We can see the things that are wrong with us, but we want to put a camouflage over the top of us so nobody can see it. And it sounds like this. I may have issues, but at least I'm not like, you know, over there, right? At least I'm not like blank. See, I think that's why gossip programs are so popular in the United States. We love hearing the dirt on other people, right? But don't do an expose on us, because that would be really ugly. So I think we really love gossip programs for that reason. Do you remember in Psalm 139 what David the king finally cried out to God in utter humility, getting towards the end of his life, and he writes this, God, will you show me if there's any wicked way in me? Just look on my heart. Tell me what's really going on inside. Why? Because only God can reveal the heart. We tend to want to put the camouflage on, right? I'm right there with the rest of you. We we do it. It's human nature. That's what you see Elijah doing. I may have issues, but at least I'm not like these degenerate people I'm living with. Here's the truth for us today. 
living in 2015, for revival to begin in my nation, it begins with me. You agree with that truth? For revival to begin in my culture, it begins with me. That's what God's pushing on Elijah's heart about. What about you, Elijah? What are you doing here? Let's finish the story up. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Regardless of all the names you just saw mentioned there, hear this. God deals so graciously with us. He does. And that's what's coming out of those last two verses. God deals so graciously with Elijah and with you and I. Elijah, go back. Go back to where you got off track with me. Go back to where you personally stepped out of the game. Go back to this nation. Return on your way, verse 15. So his command is, go back. Get back in there. Vacation is over. You've had 50 days off, man. Jump back in. Now note this. It's the same nation. It's the same culture that he left 50 days previously. Jezebel is still in power. She still rules and she's still hunting for him. But our God doesn't freak out, does he, church? God's not worried. He says, get back in there. So just quickly, the reason he mentioned those names anoint Haziel, king of Syria. That's the nation that's mentioned there first. God's dealing in international politics there. Then he tells him, anoint Jehu, king of Israel, meaning God's going to put another man on the throne in place of Ahab. He's about to remove him. And then anoint Elisha, because Elijah, there is a future. Even though you don't think there's a future, there's a future. And the future needs good leaders. So God's saying, I'm dealing with international politics, I'm dealing with national politics, and I'm dealing with spiritual leadership here, Elijah. That's what's coming out of those verses. Because there is a future, and the future needs godly leaders. Last two verses. Verse 17, it shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet, verse 18, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. If you have a New International Version of the Bible this morning, your translation is a little more accurate than what's on the screen. The New American Standard Version is on the screen, and it's always a very reliable source, but in this case, this last verse says it more plainly in the New International Version. Instead of, I will leave 7,000, it should read this way. I will reserve 7,000, meaning God's got some people that Elijah knows nothing about that are already living in the land who have not kissed the hand of the statue of Baal, who have not bowed down to where culture is going. God knows that they exist and he says, I have reserved them. The Hebrew word that's used there is sha'ar, meaning I've caused them to swell up. It's at my doing. And here's what he's telling us. I'm using people who are keeping my ways. And because they have kept my ways, even when culture has diminished and run away from me, 
I have plans for them. I have plans because they have a future, and I'm going to use them. In other words, this is what your God is saying, church, in 2015. I'm in control. Even when it feels like things are not in control, I have things going on you haven't even begun to imagine. That means Mark Kring doesn't know everything. That means you don't know everything. If a week and a half ago you felt like curling under a bush out in the desert and hiding from culture, God says, get up. I've got more for you to do. You need to engage. You need to show people that I am grace and mercy, that I am love. So this is where an exercise of your faith comes in. You and I don't know all that God is working on. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. He chooses to reveal what he chooses to reveal. And so this is where the exercise of faith comes in. Because according to Romans 8.28, my Bible says that God is working all things together for good. Do you believe that? He says it because it's true. His word never changes. Same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God says, I'm working all things together for good, we have to have faith in him that he really knows what he's talking about. So we leave this story this morning understanding that Elijah has more work to accomplish for God. He thought his life was over. He thought culture was gone. He's curled up under a bush, and God says, get back in the game. Now here's a thought for you as you leave. It is not a bad thing to have a cave. It is not a bad thing place to go to, to have a cave to hide away in. Sometimes God even sends us there, a place to lick your wounds, a place to be refreshed. Jesus went to the mountains by himself. Sometimes he went to the lakeshore just to get away from the crowd. He needed time to recharge, but the temptation is that when culture seems like it's going to hell in a handbasket, we want to stay in the cave, right? Right? It's so easy to go into bunker mentality. I want to hide. I want to stick myself away and protect my family and shelter them. God says, get back in there. I want you to engage even when culture turns, maybe even when our livelihood is threatened. And here's why. This is the overarching principle. Because we have a world around us that desperately needs to know Jesus Christ. Right, church? desperately and if we're God's instruments how else are they going to know so we're done you get out of church early this morning you're going to get to go eat ice cream in just a minute but I want to pray with you that God takes the things that we've heard and really translates them into our life that we would take them seriously it's the word of the Lord right so let's pray about that that God would seal it for us Father, I believe that you've spoken plainly and clearly and loudly this morning. And I hope it's you that we hear, not the voice of a man. Father, I pray for that, that your word, your truth comes screaming off the pages. Father, I pray for the strength, the courage, the encouragement of this group who is gathered here on this holiday weekend. That we've seen truth in the last two weeks that you have a word that never fades, it never goes out of existence. Your word remains forever. And because your word is true, you have used it to speak to us. And we don't have an excuse to step away or hide.
but rather you expect us to engage and engage with mercy and with grace the same way that you showed each of us mercy and grace. Father, we pray for this in the name of our Lord and Savior whom we celebrated this morning, our returning King Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.